0: Hello everyone and welcome to the InDefense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I bet you would be doing a little bit better if you went over to our store and checked out some of the new merch designs we have up in there. There is something for everyone. All of our merch is customizable, so you can find a style that works for you. And of course, merch is one of the best ways you can help support this podcast. Speaking of the podcast, I have a great episode for you today. Our friend Dr. Adam Karamans is back to talk to us about his favorite subject, and it just so happens to be one of mine as well, and that is orchids. Since we last talked to Dr. Karamans, he's been continuing his work on vanilla, but he has also published a beautiful book called Demystifying Orchid Pollination, which is essentially a really approachable literature review that just kind of looks at the state of orchid pollination research, what we do know, and more often what we don't know, It is beautifully illustrated with some of the best photography you're gonna see in the world of orchids. And there's also ways to watch videos associated with what he's writing about. I don't wanna steal any of his thunder because talking to Dr. Karamans about the subject of orchids is mesmerizing and you always walk away with a deeper appreciation for one of the coolest plant families in the world. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Adam Karamans. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Adam Karamans, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since we last talked, but you have stayed ever productive, ever interested in Orchids. Welcome back. For those that aren't too familiar with your work, let's start off with a brief introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Right, Matt. Thanks so much for having me again. I've been on a couple of times and it's always a lot of fun to, to talk to you. Um, well, I am a director of Lancaster Botanical Gardens here in Costa Rica. Um, it is a public-owned botanical garden that is owned and run by the University of Costa Rica. Uh, and since last year, we are officially a research center of wow. the university. Excellent. Um, so that, Yeah, that's a great recognition.
0: Nice. Well, I mean... It's deserved, right? Because you guys keep yourselves very busy in the world of research, and uh, you in particular have had a... It's been about a year, actually. Uh, we were just talking before we hit record. Very productive year in the world of orchids, and and somehow, amazingly, uh, one of the greatest plant families in the world has truly kept you busy.
1: Sure, sure. Orchids, uh, of course, keep us busy. There's, um, well... I would say around 30,000 species worldwide, and only here in Costa Rica we have close to 2,000 native orchid species, so it's definitely a family that keeps us all busy. And there's just so much to learn about orchids.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I really appreciate about your career is is dialing in, really focusing on a lot of the natural history and, and ecology of these species through sort of a biodiversity, taxonomy, evolutionary lens. And and trying to dispel a lot of myths, but uh, also just so many more unknowns, uh, especially for a lot of the lesser known species that are native to Costa Rica, but Central America, the tropics in general.
1: Sure, I, I would say that one of the most um, difficult or, or challenging um, parts of, of botany is doing uh, ecology when it is related to species interactions. That you can only understand in the field, <laughs> and I think that, that is that is one of the you know one of the hardest uh, and and less understood um, subjects in in plants in general and and especially in orchids and tropical orchids especially um, because of course it is something that you can I mean we also do taxonomy and systematics and a lot of uh, modeling niche modeling and you know, biodiversity modeling, but um, doing ecology, you really can, o- can only do it uh, locally. And um, it is it is challenging to work in these conditions sometimes and, and work with these uh, epiphytic orchids, which may be rare or hard to find and, you know, maybe hidden somewhere in, in the middle of the jungle and, uh, well, it's never easy to work there. So it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time.
0: Yeah, I think of you know the struggles I've gone through in sort of temperate forest areas, trying to find the plants, trying to get a big enough sample size. And every time we talk, you're kind of always treading that line between really trying to respect what's going on, like you said, in nature, seeing these plants doing what they evolved to do, where they evolved to do it, but then also contending with the the publishing sort of milieu of well there's not enough of them well you didn't have enough observations it, it's this this tug of war between how am i supposed to do all that and learn anything of consequence for some of these species many of these species i guess
1: right right we we um well we have a better understanding of how much diversity there is than and and, and even then we still need to do a lot of work of yeah. course but but we have a much better understanding of how much diversity there is than of um, how all these species are interacting with each other uh, in their habitats and their niches. So there there is much more work on orchid taxonomy, for example, mm. than on um, the species interactions. We are way 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 behind. It.
0: I that actually brings me to a, a question I was thinking of uh, knowing we were going to be talking today it was. Does the taxonomy side of your work almost complicate some of the natural history ecology side of your work? Because you're always trying to figure out what is a species? Does this quantify enough difference to become a, a, a unique species? Or, you know, say you did work on one species, what was thought to be one species, and then later next year you do work and, oh, it's two or three cryptic species. How much does that kind of... Do you find it's like a almost a struggle in your own field, in your own lab to go, what are we doing to ourselves? <laughs>
1: That is a, that is a very interesting question. I don't think anyone has had ever asked me about that, but it is it is very it's a smart question because it does have an impact indeed. I mean, we are lucky, I would say, at Lancaster that we are doing uh, all of these things at the same time uh, in the same place, and we have different experts at, available at the garden. And I would say one of the um, drawbacks of both of these uh sciences is not talking to each other Uh. so you have you have taxonomists that have no idea of how um any of these plants are behaving in nature where do they grow what populations do they have what variation do they have how they interact with uh with other uh, organisms and you and at the same time you have A lot of ecologists that don't worry too much about species boundaries (laughs) and then uh, are also, you know, prone to make uh, a bad judgment call Mm. because they're not thinking about, you know, um, what could actually be a different species within my um, study or interest group right? So so that's a very good question. And indeed, I, I think we have the luxury here that we have experts in different areas that can help out. And uh, of course, it's always a team effort to to get these uh, studies done.
0: Certainly. Yeah, I can imagine it's, it's a luxury uh, in some senses, but also, you know, <laughs> I'm sure plenty of debates over beers later in the week or something to that effect. But it's also fascinating to think of, you know, I'm sure when you're on planes talking to the general public or people that don't have any attachment to what you do as a scientist, you say, "Oh, I study orchids." That sounds like one field, but it's it your your efforts truly have to be interdisciplinary within the world of orchidology, let alone botany and and how we look at things like that.
1: Well, well, as a, as director, I also have a, a role in politics here at the university. So,
0: <laughs> lucky you. So as you can
1: imagine, as you can imagine, I I'm, I always have to justify and explain why we need a whole research center dedicated exclusively to one plant family. But it's exactly what you're saying. I mean. We have people working with mycorrhiza, with uh, pollinators. We have people doing in vitro culture. We have people Mm. doing taxonomy, systematics, bioinformatics, genomics. So, you know, you're integrating all these different uh, fields of science. And at the end, you're looking at so many different aspects. And And I would say that is one of the main reasons that I got interested in vanilla is exactly that In in Costa Rica, vanilla is a a genus of um, about 12 or 13 different species. So it's a small genus Mm. compared to other orchids. Right. Um, Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that makes it manageable in the sense that, okay, well, the taxonomy, okay, it it is challenging, but you have only, you know, this well-delimited group of species. Mm. So... That allows you, okay, after we have solved the taxonomy, now we can look at um, the fungi on the airborne parts of the plant versus those in the soil, for example. Uh, How are those communities different? And and we have a PhD student working on that, um, collaborating with with Texas Tech. Um, We have several students working on the pollination systems of, of different vanilla species. We, we are working on the dispersal of, of uh, seeds and, and, and the fruits and how they are attracting animals for the dispersal of this, this particular um, orchid. And we, ha- we are growing plants in vitro to see not only if they germinate after you know, passing through di- the digestive system, but also you know, how germination can be affected by different um, methods of scarification of the seeds, we are looking at population genetics we are looking at microsatellites we, we are looking at all sorts <laughs> of different aspects of this one group
0: yeah it's amazing and that's really the benefit and and why when you really start to spell it out it makes such political sense to move forward and you know not only are you working and collaborating with the current generation of scientists to try to understand this group you're training up the next generation of scientists and you're doing it little pieces at a time. And, and as you kind of mentioned, it, it does take a village to get to understand even a small group, let alone the diversity that's out there. And, you know, vanilla is fascinating because here's a, a genus, at least, that people across the globe will recognize, at least in name, right? But the amount of unknowns that are still in there and the amount of assumptions that have been made just because it's so charismatic, at least a few species are, uh, it just gives you so much fodder as a scientist... In charge of many other scientists working with many other scientists to start piecing uh, those things together from data-driven research
1: yes exactly so when i started looking at vanilla about i would say 10 years ago um yeah we we really quickly realized that uh, a lot a lot of these um very basic ecological questions remained unanswered or at least very partially answered and with very little evidence to to support them. Um, so it was it was fascinating that that you know all of this still needed uh, to be done.
0: Yeah, and the last time you were on, we talked a bit about some recent publications you had made with your colleagues on just that, like what was going on with vanillin, this flavor and scent that you know is really entranced everyone around the globe. How does it relate to reproduction? How does it relate to seed dispersal? But it doesn't end there. And that's what's also really cool about tracking careers like yours is it's not, okay, we're done with this. Let's move on to the next piece of the puzzle. It's how far does this go? What differs among, you know, the 12 species that you work with or, you know, give or take. And you've really elaborated in the last year and then some on where that first set of knowledge takes you. And that's another really great encapsulation of like how the scientific process works. It's not, okay, wrap up, we're done. It's, Okay, we've got a bunch more questions to start working with here,
1: right? Um, well, when, when you have an I- hypothesis, the idea is that you keep on proving that by by new uh, uh, tests and 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 additional evidence and and more proof, right? That's how science works. So you start. It's not that you just say one thing and that's it, and you forget about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that you build upon, and and you're always building upon. Either your own research or someone else's, um, you know, there's, it's very rare to actually come up with something completely new that no one else had ever, you know, people that normally claim that are are just ignoring the past. Right. But uh, we we normally take uh, things one step uh, forward and one, a couple of steps forward, and we're always building on on what people knew um, before. And so, for example, well, the the papers that you are referring to are the ones on on seed dispersal. I'm I'm definitely not an expert on on the seed dispersal of orchids, but um, well, we we looked at um, you know how what was known about animal animals dispersing orchid seeds, and that is in in orchids the vast majority of species I would say 95% of all all, all orchid species are Uh, wind dispersed Mm. Um, and people normally when they think about orchids and talk about orchids are thinking about these tiny little seeds that are easily blown away by the wind and that is in fact the case for most of them but we do have some orchid groups specialized on animal dispersal and and it's very interesting because um they can be very very varied Um, So there's a few now now that have been well-established, especially in recent years, that we know um, in in Asia, for example, there are a few orchids that are dispersed by crickets, and um, so the seeds are dispersed by crickets, and uh, a few that are known to be dispersed by birds. Um, But the case of of vanilla is, is... striking for for a couple of different reasons. Uh, One is, of course, that vanilla is a very big group. It has more than 100 species, and they are all probably uh, dispersed by animals. Hmm. We don't know what these animals are yet, but but what we do know is that in this uh, big species diversity within vanilla, we also have a uh, big diversity of uh, different dispersal agents. So even though we only know the dispersers of a few species, let's say a handful of, of vanilla species, we already know that there's many different mechanisms with involving different animals. Mm. So that's very cool. So in vanilla, um, we have basically divided it up in three different um, types of animals in a way, um, which is related to the uh, kind of um, seed, or no, sorry, the kind of uh, fruit that they have. So in vanilla, you have um, something called dehiscence, which it basically means that the fruit opens naturally. Mm. And yeah. you also have vanilla species that are indehiscent, which means that the fruit doesn't open uh, when it matures. So that this occurs naturally. Yeah. And um, what we now know is that the, the fruits of these uh, vanillas that open versus those that don't open naturally are attracting different uh, animals that disperse oh. the seeds. Um, and so essentially what we found is that vanillin, which is present in, in both of these um, kinds of fruits, um, which can be present, let's say, in, the, in these kinds of fruits, is attracting when it when it opens up the fr- naturally and and the fruit exposes the vanillin, which is an aromatic compound. We find that uh, euglossine bees, which are um, male uh, bees uh, known as orchid bees, um, they are collecting these uh, fragrances. So they they collect fragrances from different Uh, sources, including many many orchid flowers. That's why they're known as orchid bees.
0: Hmm.
1: We now know that they also collect vanillin, in fact. And so it's during uh, the collection of this aromatic compound that they actually get the vanilla seeds stuck onto their bodies. And so I mentioned, well, we, we integrate with having experts in different areas and that was important for this because what we found is that so we started catching uh you know all these male orchid bees that would come to the vanilla fruits and and we discovered that there's more than a dozen different species of uh orchid bee uh coming to the vanilla uh fruits and and potentially dispersing these seeds um and then we found that the fruits that don't open up like that, um, don't they hiss naturally, but actually fall to the ground and ferment and mature on the ground, are um, eaten by different mammals, and hmm. uh, especially uh, rodents. And uh, so we used camera traps to do this in, in different um uh, forested uh, reserves here in Costa Rica uh, on both the Pacific and, and Atlantic coasts, and and we found uh, a diversity of mammals. Like I said, especially rodents, attracted to these fruits and and specifically going and feeding upon them. Um, so there we have two different uh, mechanisms using essentially the same fruit, uh, similar compounds. Right. Um, you know. Uh, very different animals
0: yeah and you start to think of like the diversity of a group like this uh, you know albeit in at least in costa rica a manageable diversity and it starts to get it like okay what are the differences what were some of the selective pressures and to be able to elaborate on that at least gives you an idea of like okay we know this player does this this player goes that way they're eating them off the ground these are bees collecting scents and you start yeah. to piece together like, okay, what are the life histories of these that might influence where that seed then in, ends up or how that seed passes through? How far can it go? Those kinds of questions. It, it really does lend to like, okay, we've got so many more things we need to start investigating from this, but you, you yeah. got to start somewhere. And that somewhere yeah. is often yeah. just looking at who's doing what.
1: Yeah. And, uh, well, we, we found out that there's also, um, uh, Fruits that are dehiscent so that they open up, but are very fleshy, like the ones that fall into the ground. And so they have uh, the seeds in pulp-like substance that ferments and smells a bit banana-like. And we found that those are actually uh, visited by, and so these are, are, again, big fruits with, with uh, fleshy um, insides. And uh, those are visited by mammals, but but different mammals. So these are arboreal mammals that are consuming the the interior of these uh, of these fruits. And so we're talking about three different um, strategies, all using vanillin. So these are vanilla fruits that have vanillin, and there are many species of vanilla that don't have vanillin that can mm. that surely have different strategies to attract different kinds of animals uh, using other compounds so that's what makes it uh in, in very very impressive you know only within this small clade of uh, small subset of species we already see so much diversity and and such a big uh, diversity of, of vectors and, and and involving different animal groups So that's very interesting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to go back to this idea of sort of interdisciplinary, this is why if you're just looking at herbarium specimens or just looking at a handful of photographs, you wouldn't be getting anywhere near the complete picture. You need chemists involved to know what the chemistry is of these compounds or whether or not they're even there or the other ones. You need wildlife people to even identify what you're picking up on your camera traps because I can put a bunch of camera traps out in the jungle. I wouldn't know what the heck I was looking at half the time. So This is why it takes so many different people just to understand. But again, you're getting at the core of like, why are these species different? You mentioned niche modeling. This is part of that n-dimensional niche volume that truly does make species unique in their own way.
1: Right. And you really have to go one step further with this. I mean, what? um, it's not only about uh, seeing an animal arrive at a fruit, you Mm -hmm. know, that's one thing. But then you you actually need to prove that these animals are consuming the fruits, are consuming the seeds at the end, right? Mm -hmm. It it may leave part of the fruit, but you want to make sure that the seeds are being taken uh, with the animal, right? Otherwise, it's not dispersal at all. Right. (laughs) Um, But the other point is that if these animals are eating the fruits, you also need to prove that the seeds that are um, coming out of the animal are actually viable, and and that's something that we did test. So that was very cool. And we you know we fed the animals um, <laughs> uh, vanilla fruits, and we actually tested the seeds and germinated the seeds from the feces of these animals. Um, we did it in the lab and we did it in the field. So that was really cool. We actually got plant of vanilla growing. From the feces of uh, these rodents in Cahuita National Park, so in situ where the vanillas grow, we got the flatbed. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's how you wrap up a story, and right. then, you know, that's when you really say, okay, you know, we discovered how this whole system is is working. Yeah. Before that, you can't really say anything. I mean, you if, if you're just guessing, you know, right, without without the whole story.
0: I I love that because I don't know if it's as expensive to get fermented vanilla beans in Costa Rica as it is up here in the States, but the thought of you feeding these really expensive uh, commodities, that's so amusing to me. But it's all, again, it's a function of where you're at and and trade, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. If I buy commercial vanilla, I would have po- probably not been able to to feed it to the rats. But uh
0: there goes your funding. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I use I use the wild fruits as well. You know to yeah. to make uh, make the whole story complete and 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 correct. But uh, yes, indeed, they're also expensive okay. down here. It's
0: not just us. <laughs> it's- resourcefulness but you know when you think of like a charismatic group like this that a lot of people will recognize very utilitarian in terms of its value to society and cultures around the world you start to see why there's so many avenues for injecting just a speculation and then that from that speculation becomes you know a couple people repeat it and suddenly it's it's entering into the lexicon it's almost to the point where this myth arises from maybe even harmless speculation but orchids are so prone to this just because of the amount of unknowns, but yet they're also extremely charismatic plants. And that's something else you've been really, I mean, since we've known each other and then beyond, you've been trying to tackle, uh, demystifying some of these myths. And, and that's where I think, you know, vanilla is such a great place to start telling those stories, but there's so many more.
1: Right. Well, um, just to connect from, from, uh, seed dispersal, um, well, what, what, there are numerous claims of, of, of animals that uh, disperse the seeds of, of vanilla uh, and and some of them might indeed be be true mm-hmm. um, some have even been associated with um, with flower pollination uh, instead of, of uh, seed dispersal um, for example um, one of the mammals that has been cited as a pollinator of Vanilla is um, uh, bats, mm. and and I think that the observation, which was just a, a mere observation, is probably uh, was probably simply of bats coming to the vanillas because of the fruits. So that's another mammal, right, oh. that that is able to 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 detect the this uh, probably the vanillin presence and mm. these fleshy fruits, and 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 the presence of bats uh, around vanilla is probably related to seed dispersal and not pollination. Hmm. In fact, um, that, that was one of the myths that we tackled in the in the orchid pollination book uh, demystifying uh, orchid pollination. Um, and that was you know there are no uh, known or proven cases of mammal uh, pollination in orchids. They are, they are pretty rare in plants. Um, and and in, in, in the case of, of orchids, they have been cited, as I mentioned before, uh, as uh, in, in the case of bats uh, pollinating vanilla, but we think that's a, probably, probably a mistake. And, and the other one, the other case that is known is the case of a publication claiming that a mouse was uh, pollinating a cymbidium flower in China. The paper never actually got published, but it mm. is available online. Um, but it, it just makes very little sense in a way. So there's a lot of different um, possibilities and, and a lot of different uh, orchid pollinators, but mammals are just uh, unlikely for several reasons. Uh, one is the size of, of the animal versus the size of the orchid power. Mm. That makes it already difficult for for a mammal to actually um, be able to get inside the flower in such a way that gets the pollinaria placed uh, in such a way that it can then deposit that pollinaria. The other is uh, that these animals are normally hairy, and uh, it's very difficult to place orchid pollen or orchid pollinaria with precision um, the precision needed for orchid pollination on, on a hairy animal. <laughs> right. um, and the third is the, the availability of food. So um, these flowers that are pollinated by bats and by mice, um, so there are cases known not in orchids, they are very, uh, very nectariferous. So they have a lot of nectar, um, and so they're offering these animals uh, a lot of food. And orchids simply aren't uh, offering the, the amounts that these
0: animals need. Yeah, I by no means all encompassing in terms of my orchid knowledge and to, like what rewards, but I would guess many more are little to no rewarding flowers than there are heavy rewarders, especially.
1: Right, there are rewarders, and that—that that is one of the things that we did uh, tackle in, in the book. Um, uh, so people, when they think about orchids, they normally think about uh, these plants that are always deceiving their <laughs> their <laughs> pollinators and the researchers. Um, um, and in fact, they, they there are there are uh, th- there's quite a quite a few uh, known uh, deceivers. Um, it's about a third of, of all orchids that are known to, to be deceiving, but um, that means that the the rest of them are providing some sort of uh, um, reward. Mm. And uh, so it is it is it's not true that the majority of orchids are de- deceptive. But it is true that deception is very common in orchids okay? because, that, you know, when you say it's a third of orchids, well, we're talking about 10,000 species, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That employ this, this, this strategy so well of, of deception. So that's, that must be among the most uh, species-rich um, groups that are using mm. deception as, as a strategy in plants. So that, that is what makes it uh, quite fascinating. And also the the amount of different uh, deceptive strategies. Right, work. right.
0: And that brings me to another point. In, in trying to write a book like Demystifying Orchid Pollination, I mean, I know you're an orchid expert. You spend a lot of time thinking about it, but there are so many out there. And I think, you know, lending to some of those myths is just, when you do hear even truthful stories, you're going, what the heck is going on in this family? Like, they're doing wild stuff, just absolutely wild things. So anyone could say something. You're like, I I guess that sounds true. It's no less weird than this other example over here. How do you, how do you a go, I'm going to write a book about this and then B go, okay, I need to somehow make sure I finish writing this book to actually publish it. How did that all start for you?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going to say two things. (laughs) First, I'm going to say that I was very naive in getting into it.
0: (laughs) Good. (laughs) Always a great place to start for a book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) uh, yeah. Yeah. If I would have talked to to myself five years ago, maybe I would have done something different. (laughs) But um, uh, it was a lot of fun as well. A lot of fun. Um, I had to read about 500. I'm not joking and I'm not exaggerating. I had to read about <laughs> a, 500 papers to actually write this this damn book. Wow! Um, but it made it, it was so so much fun because I I got to you know this this book has to be seen. It it people um, may think it is an authoritative authoritative book in a, in a sense that in the sense that they might be expecting me to, to expel all this knowledge, and it's not. It's it's more like a journalist book in, mm. in the way that, you know, I had to learn about 90% of what I'm saying. I had to learn it myself, and I had to mm. read about it and, and find all these uh, new avenues and, and, and concepts out before I could actually um, uh, talk about it. So, so that was a lot of fun, fun. I learned a lot myself. And now I'm able to, you know, share some of that uh, with, with you guys. And, and and I I mean, the idea of the book is to open uh, your mind as to what you can expect in orchids and um, where to find more literature about it. So mm. that's very important for me as well. It's not, just, you know, you have to believe me. No, <laughs> you know, we are... Here are all the references for each of the stories, and, and you can go ahead and, and look at those yourself. And um, there are many unanswered questions as well and things that's, that still need to be looked at. And I would say that one of the, the key um, key elements of the book is that demystifying is by no means... <laughs> and it, the intention is by no means to, to take the magic out of orchids. No. Definitely not. Um, I would say that the reality is probably even crazier than, than <laughs> right. and, and that's, that's part of the fun. I mean, there are some crazy strategies out there. And, and, uh, I, I think that if, if you like ecology, if you like, if you enjoy orchids and if you have ever wondered about the shape and the, uh, colors of the flower and, the uh, hairs or words or whatever it's producing, and you know, you're gonna love this book because it it really tackles all every. I can't say everything that we sure. know about explanation, but but it comes pretty close. I would say. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I what I really appreciate about this book is it it truly is. It's a it's a it's a state of the science, right? It's a literature review that you got to do because I'm guessing in your day to day. Work life, you got to kind of stick to whatever you're trying to publish on. Here's an excuse to go diving into other nooks and crannies of the orchid literature as it relates to pollination. But at the same time, putting it together in a way that's approachable, that's digestible, that's fun, interesting, beautifully illustrated with some stunning photography, it, it really says, okay, this is where we're at. And like you said, this is by no means shutting down the topic or saying, yeah, it's actually more boring. It is look at what we know, look how much we don't know, go forth, study these things because A, you get to stare at amazing plants all the time and B, there's just so much left to be discovered in that world.
1: Right. I, I would say that, that um, if, if, if I can in- inspire something with the book, it's exactly what you're saying. It's for people to look at orchid flowers a bit in a different light. So ask different questions that they were asking before Like what are what is this for? What is going on here? What am I seeing? Is this insect? What is this insect doing? What could be the function of this smell or this color? Right. Um, but also it's about saying, damn, there's so much to be done, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And I can do it. Yeah, that's the point. You know, don't wait for someone else to do it. There's you, you know. There's thousands of orchids, and and we know the pollination and the the, the interactions with with species of, of so very few of these of these orchids. So everybody can actually start looking at uh, nature in this way and start describing um, these interactions, and that's what we need. We need more people looking at the plants, right. you know, getting out of the lab and looking <laughs> at the plants.
0: You know. Please. Yeah. And and I mean, you can speak to this as someone that's in this field. It's not you don't have to be in charge of a lab. You don't have to have massive funding to go out like so much of what you do. It is a struggle sometimes to get the sample sizes, but those observations matter. And it could be as as like you said, just go out and watch, see what you see. Tell someone, take some pictures, send it to someone that might know it's building off of multiple observations, but it's got to start somewhere. So this is a call to the average person, the, the, the person that just likes to go hiking and look at plants, spend some time, take some photographs if you can, take videos even better, but observations count whether they're publishable or not. They, they are important data points.
1: Right. I mean, you can, you can go as complicated as uh, taking a field trip into a, a faraway country or faraway areas setting up a, a um, complicated station with uh, with lights and photography and cameras and you know whatever or you can just take your iPhone and go outside and into your garden and have a look at what's what's going on there so these are both needed and valid and <laughs> right. um, and, and and that's the key they are needed yeah. we, we we somehow stopped uh, looking at these interactions, uh, um, maybe because um, natural history is 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 given uh, sometimes giving less importance than than, for example, statistical analyses and and lab work and and programming. but it's actually what connects your subject to the natural world. So I mean, What are we doing as biologists or or, or ecologists if we're not actually looking at how species are interacting in the actual world? Yeah. And, you know, what's actually going on there? Why do they have, you know, how are these organs uh, used? And, and, you know, yeah, it is just fascinating um, how much we don't know about that and and how much is just uh, unknown because no one is actually looking. Right. (laughs)
0: That right. is <laughs> yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, citizen science is, is easier than it's ever been. But, you know, again, as a researcher in the thick of it, how many of the plants you work with on the orchid side of things, rare or endangered or unknown, you know what I mean? In terms of their status, they haven't been assessed yet. You don't get more orchids unless they're reproducing. And to reproduce you, in the orchid world, you need the help of something, often something very specific so these are really important questions to try to answer when we consider the sixth mass extinction, the biodiversity crisis we're facing, especially in tropical areas where often you don't get a wide distribution; it can be very localized.
1: Definitely, and I well, the, the book closes with a with a chapter called "Change," and that um, deals with climate change and habitat uh, fragmentation and. Uh, yeah, that you know, there's a bit of a discussion of of what the effects of um, change is having, the change of our planet is having on pollination, and um, there's a, even there, there's there's a lot of unknowns, and uh, I think one of the coolest studies that I referred to there uh, is a study that was carried out in the UK where this where where they have 200 years of records, and that is something that you know we don't have. In Latin America, and and I try to tell the um, authorities here that you know when they ask me why do you guys need to make uh, collections every year of the same species or similar uh, species, um, and and this this example is so wonderful because it, it, it perfectly illustrates why we need that, and and so this study in the UK with 200 years of, of records was able to show that this. Uh, orchid uh, of the genus Ophris was um, flowering earlier than mm. uh, it was in the past because, of course, the, the climate has uh, uh, changed and and it's warmer now. So this orchid is is um, uh, flowering earlier than it was before. They know this because every year, you know, it would come out in spring, and every year the records are earlier and earlier. Mm. And so. But what they know now about this as well is that the insect that pollinates this orchid um, also comes out in, in spring. And, you know, they have the same amount of records going back, you know, a couple of centuries. And it too is, stu- is uh, showing up earlier. Hmm. But the thing that worries these scientists, and, and that's what makes this so coo- such a cool study, is that what they saw is that the orchid moves um, earlier, faster than the insect. Um. And so they are starting to uh, disalign um, in their you know, appearance in, the, uh, in spring. So the, the orchid is showing up earlier than the insect. And uh, as soon as they completely separate, um, this orchid is not gonna be able to pollinate anymore. Uh, it will have lost uh, its pollinator, not because it's extinct, but just because it's temporarily unavailable. Wow. And that's, that's incredible. And that, you know, so that, that talks about uh, integration studies of, of, you know, integrating different, different concepts, and, but also about how you can tackle climate change um, data by having records of, of uh, uh, centuries, that you know, people who were collecting those samples didn't know this was right. even possible, you know, right. or you know. So yeah, that. Well, the book book also deals with with this kind of thing, and uh, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I find these these stories quite quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to kind of tell or or put it into context, right? Because it seems like this big unknowing, just looming presence that we're all as individuals feel very hopeless against, but you start asking, well, what's the use of unknowing that? And why do we fund that kind of work? You just outlined it perfectly there. And, you know, in the case, if we're talking about orchid pollination, so much of it is very specific to one pollinator, one group of pollinators. And, you know, here the native plant movement talks about host plants and the specificity of those interactions. but for orchids a lot of that be- goes beyond just what's using their leaves or their tissues what's pollinating them can also, also be very very specific and if you don't have even a couple decades worth of data on those interactions and the timing let alone all the other things that can go awry it, it's just a one big shrug at the end of the day when you go well what are we doing what do we do to stop yeah. mm-hmm. or help
1: right and and i would say what makes orchid fi- orchids um, um, a good evolutionary model for, for these kinds of studies is that there is so much diversity and they, they, um, many of them interact in, in very different ways. So you have cases like this one, which is uh, a case where, where there's high specificity, but you also have orchids that are super, super generalists mm. and uh, mm. where 100 species of pollinators are known to, to exist. And and that's that's also fascinating. Or you know, orchids like uh, one species from the Grand Caymans, uh, which is endemic to the to this island, um, which has changed its uh, specificity of, of being uh, a, a, a bee pollinated orchid to actually being pollinated by different species of, of beetle uh, in the island because of the lack of of um, of bees and it has in fact also been known to be uh, pollinated by a gecko species so you know even that can can, can <laughs> occur in orbits and uh, you know it's just a really good model for for evolution
0: yeah definitely but at the you know even if beauty is just what you're after or, or trying to investigate or you just like to have a beautiful thing as i mentioned this is so beautifully illustrated with some absolutely stunning photography. And what I appreciate again, is that you look at a book like this. And for me, you know, orchids, my first interest was, Oh, look at those cool colors. There's different patterns. That's surface level, right? And then how much more interesting does that orchid become? If you go, Oh, well, those patterns make a difference. That texture makes a difference. Here's why. And that's what I think is really cool to bring the science of it all and you know sort of just the the stories of these things but to illustrate that and show that amazing organism think of all the interactions that went into shaping that and now you have so much of a deeper appreciation for that beauty and and that's the other way this book functions so extremely well
1: and you're forgetting one more thing that is very closely related to the uh, good photography and that's the videos so Ah. this was uh something that i i was very frustrated about um uh when i w- went into the literature and that's that you know you have to imagine all these interactions and i was very frustrated about that uh, all the time that you know you had to kind of you know figure out how things were were working and at some point i thought well you know why can't can't i show the readers you know videos of what is going on of what i saw and uh we actually managed to do that. So we we um, there about half of of the fifty stories that are in the book have a QR code oh, that wow. allows you to go onto a YouTube video that uh, actually shows you how these orchids are being pollinated or how the the transformation or movement is occurring. And I think that's that's really added value. That that interaction with uh, with the reader is is. You don't need to to see the videos if you don't want to see them, but, um, <laughs> you know, if you just want to read, you can just read, right? Uh, but, but it really helps to imagine, to, you know, to actually clarify how, how this, uh, occurs.
0: That's phenomenal too. Yeah. I apologize for leaving that one out because it's such a awesome way to approach the subject because again, a literature review can be a very stale sort of thing you've written compelling stories, you've got beautiful pictures, but I often struggle, you know, call it a lack of imagination, whatever, to actually envision what this whole process is like, no matter how beautifully spelled out it is on paper. So to have that component, to actually see it play out, you're watching something millennia in the making. And that to me is just a remarkable thing that you really, I think, are going to spawn a lot of new orchid fanatics with that approach alone let alone everything else that's within the pages of demystifying orchid pollination
1: right i i would hope that the book is actually aimed at both scientists and enthusiasts alike um because it's written in a more layman's language mm-hmm. but it's based on the science so you know i i think there's a bit uh of information i would say for everyone there yeah and i i Even the hardcore scientists, I'm pretty sure they will be surprised with uh, some new stuff in there.
0: Well, I would say mission achieved. And yeah, I mean, you've done a lot of the hard legwork for them. So they better be appreciative of what's in there. (laughs) Phenomenal. Dr. Kermans, this is incredible. Where, If people want to pick up a copy of Demystifying Orchid Pollination, uh, where do you recommend they go looking to find it?
1: Sure. The book was published by Q. Um, so, you know, if you're in the UK, of course, uh, Q handles uh, the book there. Uh, in the US, um, they are um, they are available through Chicago Press and also Amazon.
0: Awesome. I will make sure uh, to put up links in the show notes so that people don't have to remember that or think about it. Uh, but... Your work is incredible. And I'm so happy that it culminated for now in what we understand in orchid pollination, but it really a call to scientists to do more and, and beyond scientists, your average citizen, just get out and observe. But as always, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. I know you're a very busy scientist, a very busy person. You've got a very busy personal life. Like, Thank you so much for your time on top of everything else that you do.
1: Thanks so much, Matt. I always have a lot of fun talking about these things. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody enjoys the book. And well, I hope to hear you soon enough. Excellent.
0: Well, again, thank you for your time. And in the meantime, keep it up. But I hope you have a good and fun holiday, some rest and relaxation with the family. You deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Excellent. Cheers. Cheers. All right. How fun was that? I thank Dr. Karamans for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And once again, that book is called Demystifying Orchid Pollination. I will put up links where you can purchase a copy for yourself. It is well worth it just for the stories, but also the amazing photography and the videos you get linked to some of these stories. It really does help bolster a greater appreciation for the world of orchids and how they reproduce. As always, all of the links are in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com. I've changed the website so that the podcast is the homepage, so just go over to indefensiveplants.com and check out this episode as well as every previous episode. While you're over there, consider all of the different ways you can support this show. You can pick up a copy of my book. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can purchase some of our merch, which we have new designs up there. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash I seriously couldn't be doing it without support. So thank you to everyone that has kicked in over the years. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.